Thank you for listening to our Emmanuel Baptist Church podcast sermon series by Pastor Sean Cole. Emmanuel exists to display God's glory, declare God's gospel, and to disciple for God's great commission. If you have any questions about this message or would like more information about our church, you can visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. Preach. I was just thinking, um, I, I made a note up here because I wanted to make sure that we did lift up the Gillum family in prayers. Um, if you guys are unaware, we prayed for them last week for their, their son, um, their son Benjamin. Benjamin did pass away later on that evening, so I wanted to lift up that family in prayer. So if you would join me in prayer for this family. God, we do lift up the Gillums before you. I do ask for your comfort. God, it's, I'm sure the, the pain that they are experiencing right now goes beyond words. And God, I just pray as best we can that we can support and comfort and love this family. Jesus, we ask this in your name. Amen. All right, well, we're going to be in the book of Joshua this morning. Joshua chapter 24. Pastor Sean is, uh, Pastor Sean will be back in Luke next week. So, in 1776, I had to think about Independence Day as I was preparing this morning. In the American colonies, there were actually three major groups of Americans in terms of attitudes towards independence. One group was the Loyalists. They were those that wanted to remain with the English crown and be, use diplomacy and other means to deal with their grievances, but they didn't really want to leave the British Empire. Another group were the Patriots. The Patriots were those who sought to break away from King George III and establish an independent nation. However, there was a major group out there that we don't really think about, which is an undecided middle. Um, in fact, some historians think there was a quarter that were for independence, a quarter who were against independence, and then 50% of the population that pretty much didn't really care. They were just undecided. A historian, and that's why historians think they were the largest part. But as time continued, Americans realized they had to make a choice. You could either, to do nothing was to side with the loyalists and the British crown. To side with the patriots meant that you risked your neck and your livelihood. But we celebrate our Independence Day, as we no doubt are aware of, is that most of those undecided middles began to embrace the side of the patriots. The point is, in this history, we can realize that indecision really ends up becoming a decision. And at some point, you're going to have to decide what it is that you're going to do. You can only delay for so long. Israel, when we're going to read this passage this morning, faced a similar fork in the road. The land of Canaan had just been conquered. They're getting ready to go home and build families and communities and establish trade relations and all this. The fighting is done. And so the question is, what's going to happen? Now that this generation has finally settled into the promised land, what's going to become of them? So Joshua gathers all the people of Israel to make a choice to renew the covenant, and it's to that end that we turn, which was what we're going to read, starting in verse 1 of Joshua chapter 24. Joshua gathered all the tribes of Israel to Shechem, and summoned the elders, the heads, the judges, and the officers of Israel, and they presented themselves before God. And Joshua said to all the people, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, 
Long ago, your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates, Terah, the father of Abraham and of Nahor, and they served other gods. Then I took your father Abraham from beyond the river and led him through the land, all the land of Canaan and made his offspring many, and I gave him Isaac. And to Isaac I gave Jacob and Esau, and I gave Esau the, he, the hill country of Seir to possess, but Jacob and his children went down to Egypt, and I sent Moses and Aaron, and I plagued Egypt with what I did in the midst of it, and there, afterward I brought you out. Then I brought your fathers out of Egypt, and you came to the sea, and the Egyptians pursued your fathers with chariots and horsemen to the Red Sea. And when they cried to the Lord, he put darkness between you and the Egyptians and made the sea come upon them and cover them. And your eyes saw what I did to Egypt, and you lived in the wilderness a long time. Then I brought you to the land of Amorites, who lived on the other side of the Jordan. They fought with you, and I gave them into your hand, and you took possession of their land. I destroyed them before you. Then Balak, the son of Zippor, king of Moab, arose and fought against Israel. And he sent and invited Balaam, the son of Beor, to curse you, but I would not listen to Balaam. Instead, he blessed you. So I delivered you out of his hand. And you went over to the Jordan and came to Jericho. The leaders of Jericho fought against you and also the Amorites, the Pezzarites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Girgashites, and the Hivites, and the Jebusites, and any otherites. No, um, and I gave them into your hand. And I sent the hornet before you, which drove them out before you. The two kings of the Amorites, it was not by your hand or by your bow. I gave you a land which you had not labored and cities you had not built, and you dwell in them. You eat of the fruit of the vineyards and olive orchards that you did not plant. Now, therefore, fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. And if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your father served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Then the people answered, Far be it from us that we should forsake the Lord to serve other gods. For it is the Lord our God who brought us and our fathers up the land of Egypt out of the house of slavery and who did all these great signs in our sight and preserved us in all the way that we went and among all the peoples through whom we passed. And the Lord drove out before us all the peoples, the Amorites who lived in the land. Therefore, we also will serve the Lord, for he is our God. But Joshua said to the people, You are not able to serve the Lord, for he is a holy God. He is a jealous God. He will not forgive your transgressions or your sins. If you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, then he will turn and do you harm and consume you after having done you good. And the people said to Joshua, No, but we will serve the Lord. Then Joshua said to the people, You are witnesses against yourselves that you have chosen the Lord to serve him. And they said, We are witnesses. He said, Then put away the foreign gods that are among you and incline your heart to the Lord, the God of Israel. And the people said to Joshua, The Lord our God we will serve, and his voice we will obey. So Joshua made a covenant with the people that day and put in place statutes and rules for them at Shechem. And Joshua wrote these books in the book of the law of God. And he took a large stone and set it up there under the terebinth that was by the sanctuary of the Lord. And Joshua said to all the people, Behold, this stone shall be a witness against us, for it has heard all the words of the Lord that he spoke to us. Therefore, it shall be a witness against you, lest you deal falsely with your God. So Joshua sent the people away, every man to his inheritance. 
All right, I know this is a longer text this morning, but we're going to break this apart into three sections. And in this, we have a covenant renewal ceremony where Israel is pledging herself to serve and obey God with everything they are. And so the main point of the text is this. Because of God's salvation, we ought to serve the Lord and reject idolatry. See, Joshua sets the stage and he gathers all the people of Israel and the the leadership of Israel and brings them all together at the place of Shechem. Shechem is an important place in the Old Testament. It's the place where Abraham received the promise of the land of Canaan for his descendants. Genesis 12, 6 and 7. Abram passed through the land to the place at Shechem, through the oak of Morah. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him. See, Israel would know this location because of God's promise to Abraham. And it's now been fulfilled. So it's kind of fitting. Abraham received the promise of the promised land, and now they've inherited the promised land, and they are back at that same location. And it's at this location that Joshua first wants to point the people to, God's faithfulness, God's rescue of his people. And see, God had made these promises that he was going to bring them to the land of Canaan, and now he's fulfilled that promise. He's rescued his people. See, Joshua is going to go all the way back to the patriarchs and bring them up to this present day, In verses 1 through 13, Joshua recounts that God, first of all, called Abraham and pulled him out of idolatry. In verse 2, Joshua notes that Abraham and his father Terah served other gods. And at that point, God called and took Abraham out of idolatry and led him into the land of Canaan, granting him offspring in Isaac and Jacob. Secondly, Joshua reminds how Israel was in the land of Egypt, and God brought out Israel out of the land of Egypt. Israel put them in bondage, but God rescued them out of slavery to Pharaoh and brought them out of the land of Egypt, delivering them from their enemies. Third, we see that God was preserving Israel in the wilderness for 40 years, keeping them from the Amorites and Balaam. We should also remember that God provided for them consistently both manna and water in that time of the wilderness. He gave them the Ten Commandments, the sanctuary. Uh, He provided many, many different occasions of miracles for them throughout their time in the wilderness. Fourthly, and this is where he's, uh, Joshua is reminding them, he has cast out the enemies, the Canaanites that were in the promised land and drove them out like hornets. Which actually had me remember something from when I lived in North Carolina. How many of you guys have heard of Yellow Jackets? You guys have probably all heard of Yellow Jackets. I had a run-in with Yellow Jackets in North Carolina. My wife and I, we were walking and hiking down a trail, minding our own business, going down this trail, and we stumbled close to an underground Yellow Jacket nest. Those hornets are nasty, mean boogers. They will do anything they can to get you. We were stung, we were bit, and so we sprinted a good two to 300 yards away from that hornet's nest. And by the time, you know, my cardio was getting to the end of its rope, I still had one that was attempting to bite me through my clothing, and it was like attached because it was so mad that I was close to its home. And so in that same way, that, that same, that same uh, desire to run away is how God's like, you know what, I drove them out like, hornets. And so this land that Israel's now inherited 
is now flowing with milk and honey. And they are now beginning to experience peace. Earlier, the author of Joshua had noted this in Joshua 21:45. Not one word of all the good promises that the Lord had made to the house of Israel had failed. All came to pass. So note the, all of the subject and verbs within that text, section as well, verses, verse 2 through verse 13. God is saying this, I took, I sent, I brought, I plagued, I destroyed, I delivered, and much more in that entire section. The point is, all of this is happening because it's God who's doing it. God is rescuing and redeeming his people, Israel. There's not one contribution Israel is making other than God doing this for them. It's as the prophet Jonah would say, salvation belongs to the Lord. If God would rescue and redeem us like he did for Israel, it's because he alone, God alone, is the one who can do it. We cannot rescue ourselves. We are like Israel, trapped in slavery in Egypt. We're doomed to that condemnation in slavery because of our sin. However, God sent his son Jesus to rescue us. Jesus explains this himself in John 3, 16 through 18. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but has eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only son. See, Jesus knows that we are unable to rescue and save ourselves. We are lost in darkness. We are hopeless and enslaved to sin and the devil, condemned to spend eternity in hell. The situation, apart from Jesus, is is bleak, and it's inescapable. And Jesus says, I have come because you are condemned, and I'm the one who has to draw you out. Paul summarizes it a little differently gets the same idea a little differently in Titus 3, 3-5. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, that would be Jesus, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. See, for one, we must realize, like Joshua did, that for us to be rescued and delivered, it has to come from God. We're not able to rescue and save ourselves. We're not as strong and mighty as we would like to think. We are helpless within our state. We got to approach God from the same standpoint that the hymn would encourage us to do. Because I've all heard this, nothing in my hands I bring Only to your cross I cling. Stop trusting in yourself and and to save yourself, right? Trust Christ. Only in Christ alone can one be rescued and delivered from one's past and present. My hope is that everyone here this morning at some point has trusted in Christ. Only Christ is the one who can rescue you from sin and from yourself. Don't delay. And Joshua wants to make this clear. We do not need to push this off, to delay. Today is the day of salvation. Which leads us to the second point Joshua wants to make to the people of Israel. 
And that's the, the second point is this. God's rescue requires a response. Israel just can't, after Joshua's just declared all these things that God has done for them, he expects a certain response from them. He exhorts them, starting in verse 14, to fear the Lord and to serve the Lord and then to reject idolatry. In New Testament terms, he could have just said, repent and believe. For Joshua, the historical information he's giving them, recounting the history of how God has rescued Israel, is is not just mere information. He means for Israel to do something about it. Now, you are very well aware of this if you're a parent. When you tell your child the trash is full, you're not just relaying information. There is an actual response that you're expecting from your child. The trash is full means take the trash to the trash can outside. Or your room looks kind of messy. You're not just revealing the state of the room. You expect your child to clean the room. In the same sense, Joshua, when he gives the information about what God has done, he's expecting from them a certain response. Joshua, in verse 15, gives Israel then this choice, this fork in the road because of what God has done. He says, you either serve God or you're going to serve idols. He says, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods, and he gives a couple of different gods that might be, or the Lord. The false gods he recounts are from the past. For example, the, the gods that his, their fathers, their forefathers served, Abraham and Terah, before God pulled them out of that, or the ones that are in the present, the gods of the Amorites. He knows we're going to have to worship one or the other. We're going to either worship other gods or we're going to worship the Lord. For Joshua and his family, he's going to lead by example, which says, for me and my house, we're going to serve a Lord. Or the way to paraphrase it would be, you do what you're going to do, but me and my house, we are choosing to follow the Lord. And there's an urgency to his exhortation. He tells Israel, if you note this, he tells them this, choose this day. It's like, resolve this now. Don't push this off. Don't go, yeah, I want to get around to it later. Take care of this decision today. The psalmist would say it this way in Psalm 95, 6 through 8. Oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker, for he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture, the sheep of his hand. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah on the day at Massa in the wilderness. In this passage, the psalmist is reminding us, today, if we hear the Lord, we need to respond, not delay. Don't harden our hearts and think that we can get around to it later. Some decisions can't be delayed, right? A wait is a no. This is parenting 101. When you want to tell your child no nicely, a lot of times what I remember my parents doing is, let me think about it. Let me think about it meant come ask me later, and hopefully you'll have forgotten about it because I don't want to say no, so let me just think about it. And maybe I'm revealing parental secrets right now, but for, for, I learned that that delay meant no. See, there's no middle ground in this decision, right? You're either going to choose God or you're going to choose idols. You can't be Switzerland. Swiss neutrality sounds great on paper, not choosing for one or the other, but think during the time of World War II. If Switzerland would have done nothing, which is kind of what they were doing, and the Nazis would have won, there would have been a certain complicity that Swiss neutrality would have achieved for Nazism. 
In the same way, sitting on the fence, doing nothing, having indecision, is the same as not choosing Jesus. You cannot remain neutral before him forever. You must choose. Joshua includes what it means to choose the Lord. If you look in verse 14, he says that to choose him means that you fear him and you serve him in sincerity and faithfulness. So to fear the Lord, that means to respect and honor the Lord as God, to hold him in high esteem, to respect what he says. And to be sincere means like a wholehearted embrace and complete in one's and one's obedience, not holding parts of ourselves back. It's entire, our entire being. And faithfulness is this idea of longevity. We ought not to waver in our, our commitment to the Lord. We're to persevere and continue it. Another way to say it is that following Jesus is costly. It's a difficult road. It's going to require everything about us. It's wholehearted commitment. We can't play games with Christ he won't have part of you. He wants all of you. Jesus would say it in the Sermon on the Mount, which Glenn read earlier, Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. See, Jesus is well aware of humanity's tendency to do the easy thing, the easy way, which is to do what everybody else is doing, to follow the crowd. We'd rather follow the crowd than choose difficulty. And Joshua is reminding Israel to stop playing games. One cannot have one foot in Christ, one foot following the Lord, and one foot following the world. You must choose. It's like being married. You can't just be partly married. You're either married or you're not. Jesus is clear that to follow him means to embrace him, to follow him, to surrender your entire person, not just part of you. You cannot be both with Jesus and the world. You can't, you have to, you're going to have to make a choice at some point. You know, I've shared this story with the youth uh, several times, so I don't know if I've shared it with you. But when I was a high schooler, there was something that was called prayer breakfast. This would happen on Thursday mornings before my high school would begin. I went to a public high school. And we would spend some time in prayer, um, eating donuts, and then we'd go jump into our school day. Well, one of those occasions I remember very vividly where I went in uh, and we did our, our prayer breakfast routine, and then we'd go get ready for school. And literally, there was like a transition. Like as soon as we left where we had our prayer meeting into the hallways of our school, it was like the language and the behavior was just like everybody else. It was like, it's okay to have one foot and be a Christian when it's, you know, in the Christian space and bubble, but as soon as I'm out, I'm going to live like the rest of the world. See, many of my, my fellow classmates that I was around paid lip service to following Christ, but if it meant standing out in the hallways of the schools as a follower of Jesus, the price for them was too high. And many people like to play games with Christ, like to toy around with, with Christ. Instead of fully embracing him, and doing what he says. We're sort of just experimenting. Kind of, there's kind of like two types, types of swimmers. I don't know if you guys have seen this. You go to the swimming pool. You have two kinds of people. You have the person who just cannonballs in and gets wet head to toe right away. And then you have the toe dippers. You know, maybe a little bit of toe. And maybe my knees. And then eventually I'll go all the way in. Maybe. Just maybe I might go all the way in. And many of us 
are, are like that. We, we kind of toy around, we, we experiment with Christianity. You're like, yeah, I'll get a little taste of it, and then I'll pull myself out when I, when I need to. And what Joshua is saying is like, no, if you're going to follow the Lord, it includes all of you. It's an all-in scenario. They are to recognize because of what God has done, we will serve him because he is our God. It's a personal God. So what about you this morning? Are you playing games? Are you just, you know, is it okay to kind of go through the Christian motions and routine when you're around other Christians or people who might notice you? Or do you, or do you go all in? Do you embrace Christ? Do you devote your entire person to him? Part of this is because of the temptation that many of us feel, which is what Joshua is calling out in verse 15, which is all about idolatry, which is our third point, which is to beware of idolatry. So right now we've kind of worked our way through verses verse 14 and 15, and 18 through 28 is kind of what we're going to take on next. And you'd think there should be a round of applause at this point. You know, it, Joshua has challenged the people to follow the Lord, to choose him, and they sort of go, yeah, yeah, you know, I think we really want to choose the Lord. And there's sort of an interesting back and forth going on between Joshua and the people of Israel. So here's my uninspired paraphrase. Joshua is essentially saying, you know, in verse 19, I don't know if you're really going to be able to serve the Lord wholeheartedly. If you're double-minded, it's actually going to be worse for you. Israel's responding, well, yeah, you know, I think we can do it. And Joshua is Hey, are you, are you sure? Are you really sure you want to do this? You seem like you're not able to. And Israel's like, oh, yeah, 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 I think we can do that. Okay, well, here's a stone, a memorial, to remind you of your commitment to God. You see, in terms of the history of the people of Israel, this is a high watermark in terms of generations. Like This generation of Israelites is probably one of the most obedient generations that we would find within the history of Israel in the Old Testament. However... Even within this generation, there was a, a, a situation that, should, that Joshua most likely was thinking in the back of his mind. And it had to deal with Achan's sin. You can read about that, I believe, uh, earlier in the, the book of Joshua. Achan, here's what happened. So Israel has just, is getting ready to sack Jericho, and they are given very clear instructions. Don't take any spoil. All the nice things in there, you must utterly destroy, destroy anything of any value. Achan receives these instructions like all the other Israelites, but he secretly steals for himself some of the spoil. He steals just some garments, some coins, and things like that. Achan's sin of not obeying God caused Israel to experience defeat later on by the hands of the Canaanites until his sin was discovered and that spoil destroyed. And this trouble was brought upon Israel by one man, who saw something that he wanted, had that moment of weakness and greed, breaking the 10th commandment, do not covet. So I think Joshua is giving this warning because he knows human nature. We have a tendency to trust God in hard and trying times, but neglect God in easy, peaceful times. You ever notice, notice this, that when things are going well for people, they tend, they maybe kind of begin to relax a little bit in terms of their, their spiritual lives. But when things are going hard and difficult, that's when they're turning to the Lord. And Joshua is probably thinking, like, things are going to get easier now. We're done fighting. We're getting ready to settle in. And I'm not, I'm not so sure that you guys are going to be able to do this. You're going to be tempted to begin to pursue other idols. 
See, Moses gave a very similar idea to Israel to this very same generation years earlier before they entered the land of Canaan. You can find this in Deuteronomy 30, 15 through 20. See, I have set before you, this is what Moses says today, life and death, death and evil. If you obey the commandments of the Lord your God, I command you today by loving the Lord your God, by walking in his ways and by keeping his commandments and his statutes and his rules, then you shall live and multiply. And the Lord your God will bless you in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. But if your hearts turn away and you will not hear, but are drawn away to worship other gods and serve them, I declare to you today that you shall surely perish. You shall not live long in the land that you are going over the Jordan to enter and possess. I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Therefore, choose life that you and your offspring may live, loving the Lord your God, obeying his voice, and holding fast to him, for he is your life and length of days, that you may dwell in the land that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, to give them. I think it's fitting that both Moses and Joshua are looking at the same generation and giving them the same sort of decision to make and the same warning. Choose the Lord or choose idols. Moses is a good teacher, Joshua is an excellent student. He said, he's just repeating very, pretty much the same thing that Moses was repeating earlier. But regardless, Christians on this side of the cross, even though we have experienced God's salvation, we too are warned against idolatry. For example, John, the Apostle John, tells his readers at the end of his letter in 1 John 5.21, it's the very last verse of, of his letter, he says this, Little children, keep yourself from idols. And Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, 14, Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. The point for this generation of Israelites whom God has rescued and pulled into the promised land, and for us as Christians, we need to beware of idolatry. So, of course, we should ask, what in the world is an idol? What is an idol? An idol is anything that takes, your pri- that takes priority before God. It's anything that you are devoted to more than God himself. It's where you go to receive comfort and joy. You serve and give your life over to this thing, whatever it happens to be. You know, for us as Americans, we probably don't bow down to a piece of wood or stone, but we have American gods that we often find nevertheless. They are often things that take more priority than they should. So here's some American gods. One is self-expression. Let me be me. Let me do what I want. I don't really care what anybody else says about me. You should not judge me. I should be able to do whatever I want, when I want. And you don't need to interfere with me. In fact, if you love me, you would support everything that I do. See, that God, this God that we have, shows up in all sorts of different ways. One of the most clear ways I think it shows up is in people who choose the LGBTQ lifestyle. You either support me and how I want to express myself. Don't bring God in the picture. Don't bring what he says about those lifestyle issues. The self and how I feel is God. Another God that we often see is what is materialism. You know, I'd only be happy if I had more stuff. If I had that boat, if I had that house, if I had more money in my bank account, then just then, I might be ha- happy. 
you know, I, I might need something a little bit later, but if I just have more stuff, then finally I might experience joy and fulfillment. How many of us give ourselves to that idol, that God of materialism? In a lot of ways, I think that God has driven some of the things that are related to, you guys may have heard of critical race theory and the, per, uh, and the push for social equity. The thought is, if somebody has more stuff than I do, then there's got to be something wrong with the world, and you either need to give some of your stuff up or give me money so I can get that same stuff. See, I don't know if it's so much being motivated, this new theory, by uh, justice as much as it's being pushed by covetousness, this idea that I want stuff. If someone has something you don't have, it, we sometimes have this mentality that it's because there's something wrong with the system. And let's redistribute what other people have because it's not fair that they have something that I don't have. And so that idea that somebody has something I don't have is covetousness. And when somebody has more wealth than us, instead of celebrating the opportunity God has given them, instead we tend to see it as some sort of injustice against me. See, another American God that we have is, is what we might call popularity. We want to be noticed. Social media is just full of people who want to be noticed. We pine for attention, might show more skin than we should be sharing, say something that we shouldn't say, jump on a cause without showing any wisdom, and repost something or whatever. Anything to get me attention, I'm going to, to do. I just need me to be noticed. And if someone notices me, then who cares how we get there? This popularity idol for myself is actually one I know that I can be tempted to grab hold of. Now, my, the way it shows up in me is a little bit different. It's not so much the social media side, but for me it's more the, the idea of recognition. If somebody recognizes me, gives me the, the pat on the back, the attaboy, then that's, it's sometimes it seems like I, I am looking for that. That popularity idol and desire to have attention is one that shows up often. So, so far we've talked about the God of self-expression, the God of materialism, the God of popularity. The, what about the God of pleasure? Pleasure is something that a lot of us want. could be in terms of entertainment, or it could be in something like sexuality. Sexuality is just one expression of this idol of pleasure. Sex is God, I and mean, we can't go through American culture without seeing some form of sexuality that's, being, that's out there. And if someone cannot express their sexuality, it's awful. I just, uh, I just pulled one aspect of Americans' obsession with, um, with pleasure and sex and looked at some of the statistics regarding pornography. And this is just internet pornography, mind you. Did you know that nearly 30,000 internet users every second are viewing pornography within America. Two and a half billion emails are containing porn each day. One quarter, 25% of internet searches are for porn. And we used to think that this was just an issue related to men, but right now, one third of pornography users are now women. And this first exposure to sexuality through pornography is getting younger and younger. Right now they say, they think that the that 10 years old is the average age when a child is first viewing pornography or just encounters it. And sometimes they're not even looking for it. See, the pornography problem that we have in America just reveals our deviancy and desire for sex outside of God's intention. When pleasure via sex is God, it leaves a devastating wake. 
if sex is what, is, is what our culture thinks, that it's just kind of a thing and not really something that has any moral qualities to it, then we just do and abuse it. Sex was intended by God for one man and one woman married in covenant before God. Anything is simulating or actual sex outside of God's intention is a sin and making an idol out of pleasure. As Calvin often reminds us, these idols are constantly being produced by the factory of the human heart. We are not immune to the disease of idolatry. And as Joshua is exhorting Israel here at the end of this covenant ceremony, we must beware of the slow drift into idolatry. We often fall asleep to its danger. I think many of us don't necessarily wake up and go, you know what, today I feel like being an idolater. At least me, I don't wake up going, you know what, I want to be today an idolater. Usually it's the slow drift over time. So, for example, uh, when I, I, I like to shoot a bow. I, I enjoy the sport of archery. And so when I go to the range and I'm, I'm shooting archery, I'll often shoot at different distances. So when I'm shooting at 20 yards, which really isn't that far, I can be pretty consistent, get a pretty tight group, and I might just be slightly off. But if, I am sli- if I'm just slightly off at 20 yards, if I look at what I'm going to shoot at 40 yards, instead of just being a couple inches, now I'm beginning to get into the distances of feet. Because the farther I go, the more that that minor, that minor twitch that I might have is, is shown over time. And many times, for us, that's how we are with idolatry. We, we kind of just, eh, you know, I'm just going to slightly veer off. And then eventually it pulls us farther and farther away from the Lord. It begins with a small compromise. You know, maybe I'll miss a church service here, ignore some calls from Christian friends, make a little bit larger compromise later, maybe tell a lie about something regarding my employment, miss a month at church, and eventually we're nowhere near where God would have us. We need to repent when we begin to see even the smallest inkling beginning to turn away from the Lord. We need to turn away from those idols and choose life. So in this text... We've seen that God has rescued his people and that his rescue requires a response. And the, next, and the need for all of us to choose God and reject and avoid idolatry. And so when it comes to following Jesus, are you playing games? Are you attempting to serve God and to serve idols? If that's the case, you're serving an idol. You're not serving Jesus. Jesus will not have any mistresses. You'll either fully follow him and serve him, or you'll not. As the song said, and we used to sing this when, when I was a kid, when we would baptize people, I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back, no turning back. So I hope if you are here this morning, and that you would heed Joshua's exhortation to choose and serve the Lord, to follow him with complete and wholeheartedness, without compromise. So I'm going to lead us into a time of prayer, and as we get ready to, to pray, I would also encourage you, we're, we're also going to set the table for the Lord's Supper, that we are to spend time examining ourselves. And I'd encourage all of us this morning to spend time examining ourselves, seeing where it is, who is it that we are really serving. Are we serving God? Are we serving idols? So I'm going to give us a few moments of silence to spend time before the Lord uh, in examining our own hearts. how, as the hymn was saying earlier, how prone to wander we are into idolatry. 
God, I do ask that you would forgive us of those times we have served other gods. And Lord, I do pray this morning, if there's anybody here that has not begun to serve you for the very first time, that they too will reject their idols and serve you. Because you are a God who rescues and saves and redeems. Jesus, we ask this in your name. Amen.